Thank you, Austin. And thank you all for being here with us this morning. We've got an early start at 8 a.m. and I recognize several of you have been here since that time. It's an accomplishment in this weather, I know. So thank you. We really appreciate your being here. I'm going to talk a little bit about this this morning about Harry Truman's and George W. Bush's contributions to the national security state. Our oceans have ceased to be moats, which automatically protect our ramparts. Flesh and blood now compete unequally with winged steel. War has become an all-consuming juggernaut. If World War III ever unhappily arrives, it will open new laboratories of death, too terrible to contemplate. This from the famously isolationist senator from Grand Rapids, Michigan, Arthur Vandenberg. Senator Vandenberg, chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee after World War II, had come to understand that in a post-Pearl Harbor world, he could not return to his antebellum isolationism if the government was to live up to its constitutional mission to ensure the domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, and secure the blessings of liberty. The new global context demanded an unprecedented degree of peacetime American engagement abroad to fortify our national security at home. So when President Harry Truman looked to solidify American internationalism through membership in the newly framed United Nations and the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, through the Truman Doctrine to aid free peoples and the Marshall Plan to rebuild Western Europe, he found a natural and indispensable ally in Senator Vandenberg of Grand Rapids. Sixty years hence, the challenge of national security is even greater, despite the work that Truman and Vandenberg set in motion. Today, the challenge of managing information alone requires enormous resources. Bradley Patterson, who served three presidents in the White House, wrote in 2000 that departments and agencies of the national security community generate some 500,000 communications each day between Washington, U.S. diplomatic, military, and intelligence posts abroad. We know the vital elements of national security, foreign policy, military policy, and domestic security policy coordinated and, and informed by the best possible intelligence. Hans Morgenthau, the author of American Realism in Foreign Policy, first suggested during Truman's years in the White House that strong institutions are also, an indispensable, or are also indispensable to national security. We inherited a State Department from the Founding Fathers, an institution to manage foreign affairs. As we shall see, thanks to Truman, Truman's National Security Act, passed again with an assist from Vandenberg, and President George W. Bush's Homeland Security Act and his Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act, Today we have executive departments that manage military and domestic security affairs, and we have a deliberate, the deliberative councils in the White House to coordinate and at times implement national security policy. Let's start at the beginning of what has been called the national security state. How important was the National Security Act to Harry Truman? On July 26, 1947, his sister Mary Jane telephoned him to say that his mother, Martha Ellen Truman, had pneumonia and might not make it through the day. Truman ordered his plane made ready. He quickly traveled to the airport for departure and then delayed takeoff for nearly an hour. Why? A few congressional signatures were needed on the National Security Act before Truman could add his signature and make it law before Congress recessed. Didn't want the act delayed any further, so he waited. Finally, the act arrived, Truman signed it, and minutes later he was airborne. But while he was still in the air, Truman received word that his mother had already died. Six years after the surprise attacks, Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, the National Security Act was intended to, quote, provide a comprehensive program for the future security of the United States, end quote. 
Up until that time, institutions involved in the national security were disorganized and divided. Ferdinand Ebestat issued a report on behalf of the U.S. Navy in 1945 acknowledging gaps between foreign and military policy, between the State Department and the military establishments, gaps between strategic planning and its logistical implementation, gaps between and within the military services, gaps in information and intelligence between the executive and legislative branches of our government, between government and the people. The Act sought to close these gaps in several ways. First, it established the unwisely named National Military Establishment, NME, enemy, which consisted of the U.S. Army, Navy, and the new Air Force that was also created by the Act. Second, it established a relatively weak cabinet-level Secretary of Defense, charged with exercising general direction, authority, and control over enemy. Third, it founded the National Security Council to advise the President with respect to the integration of domestic, foreign, and military policies. Over the years, especially under uh, Nixon and Kissinger, the National Security Council became the nexus for the most powerful cabinet members and advisors to shape foreign policy and respond to international incidents. Fourth, the Act created the National Security Resources Board to coordinate military and domestic agencies for wartime mobilization. And finally, the Act established the Central Intelligence Agency and the Office of the Director of Central Intelligence to oversee the agency and the broader intelligence community. Although the National Security Act raised fear among numerous Americans that Truman and the 80th Congress were creating a garrison state, complete with an American Gestapo, the final work was a considerably watered-down piece of legislation. It was a compromise bill, Johns Hopkins' Charles Stevenson reminds us. The struggle for the National Security Act is too long a story to be told here today, but I'll tell just the most dramatic part. The unification of the military in Washington was the toughest item on Truman's national security agenda. It dominated the contentious public debate, took years to resolve, and finally ended when one of unification's greatest opponents revised his position shortly before diving 16 stories to his death from, a naval Bethesda, from the Bethesda Naval Hospital window. In fact, the debate over unifying the military so dominated the public consciousness that barely a peep was raised over the CIA or NSA. The United States Army and Navy, both older than the Constitution, had been commanded separately since their inception. In wartime, joint planning had often been necessary and the Joint Chiefs of Staff had been created just for that purpose during World War II. But in Washington, the two had always been administered separately. Now, the need for a stronger cooperation and coordination between the Army, Navy, and the emerging Air Force was acknowledged on all sides, with President Truman arguing convincingly with support from the Army that a unified Department of National Defense would simplify the budget, create efficiencies, facilitate coordination, reassert civilian control over the military, an important point, and lead to better research, training, and planning. I have a feeling, Truman told his staff after VJ Day, that if the Army and Navy had fought our enemies as hard as they fought each other, the war would have ended much earlier. Navy Secretary James Forrestal opposed unification as Truman and the Army envisioned it, largely to protect his own branch's turf, and proposed instead bolstering efforts at cooperation and establishing a relatively weak Department of National Defense. The logjam was broken when the President demanded a comp compromise and accepted several of Forrestal's reservations and recommendations. The catch was that Truman appointed Forrestal as the first Secretary of Defense 
and told him, in essence, to live with the office he had created. It didn't take Forrestal very long to change his mind. I was wrong, he told White House counsel Cliff Car uh, Clark Clifford. I cannot make this work. Nobody can make this work. Still, Forrestal gave the job his best for two years, but its rigors drove him to a nervous breakdown. Biographer David McCullough writes, Afflicted with insomnia and loss of appetite, Forrestal appeared strangely drawn and aged, his shirt collars too large for him. Some days he would telephone the president several times on the same subject, which left Truman mystified. At meetings, he would unconsciously scratch at a particular part of his scalp until it turned raw. Forrestal finally resigned his position on March 29, 1949, and two months later copied these lines from Sophocles, worn by the waste of time, comfortless, nameless, hopeless save in the dark prospect of a yawning grave. And then he jumped 16 stories to his death. Secretary Forrestal's breakdown and suicide shocked the nation and added urgency to the 1949 amendment of the National Security Act, which Congress passed and Truman uh, signed that August, five months too late for Forrestal. The amendments replaced enemy with DOD, the Department of Defense, and created a stronger Secretary of Defense as well as Deputy and Assistant Secretaries to aid Forrestal's successors. By the, Truman, by the time Harry Truman departed the White House in 1953, our modern national security apparatus had been born. The State Department was joined in the executive branch by the Department of Defense, the National Security Council, and the CIA. Historian Michael Hogan has pointed to the law of unintended consequences, noting that after the act, the military intelligence apparatus became the biggest and fastest growing piece of our government. Foreign policy decisions, increasingly made by these new agencies, receded from public view. Adventurism abroad became more sweeping and less democratically accountable. In other words, after the National Security Act, the stage was set for an American military buildup uh, and for aggressive engagement in the Cold War. Now, believe it or not, I understand that we're here to talk about President Bush today. So let's fast forward 60 years. President George W. Bush, our nation's 43rd president, has several notable points in common with our 33rd president, Harry Truman. The two share several personal attributes in common including a common man appeal, plain talk, and a high level of loyalty. Bush and Truman shared similar qualities in foreign affairs. Both had foreign policy doctrines aimed at containing threats away from the homeland. Both men had difficulty sizing up Russians, Truman describing Stalin as benign and fatherly, Bush famously looking Putin in the eye to get a sense of his soul and discovering a man who was straight, straightforward and trustworthy. Their presidencies shared a similar fate. Both fought on popular wars, saw their approval ratings plummet to some of the lowest ratings in history, and both, rebuked by voters, turned the White House over to the opposition party. Of course, not the least among these similarities, Bush followed Truman as one of the nation's greatest reformers of the national security state. When President George W. Bush was sworn into office in January 2001, a revision of Truman's national security apparatus did not appear to be in the cards. The Cold War had ended, a decade, had ended a decade ago. No immediate security threats appeared on the horizon, and Bush had campaigned on a moderate, anti-interventionist foreign policy platform. However, the events of September 11th obviously changed matters. Nine months after the attack, Governor Tom Ridge told Congress in prepared testimony that President Bush recognized, quote, that the threat we face from terrorism requires a reorganization of government similar in scale and urgency to Truman's unification of the Defense Department and creation of the CIA and NSC. 
Recall, these are the vital elements of national security, foreign policy, military policy, and domestic security policy, coordinated and informed by the best possible intelligence. Between 2002 and 2004, President Bush focused his energy on domestic security policy, largely ignored by Truman, and on intelligence. After flirting with smaller scale homeland security reforms lodging control primarily in the White House, President Bush, with an assist from Democratic Senator Joseph Lieberman, eventually recognized the need for broader reforms. In President Bush's equation, the Homeland Security Act was his equivalent of the National Security Act. Indeed, it represented the single largest reorganization of the executive branch since Truman's legislation. Emerged 22 different government agencies with diverse histories and cultures, and 170,000 employees into the new cabinet-level Department of Homeland Security. Charged with securing our borders, preventing terrorist attacks, reducing American vulnerabilities, and responding to disasters. It's a pretty big responsibility. The department subsumed and reorganized offices from departments as diverse as agriculture, energy, defense, justice, transportation, treasury, and the FBI. It overtook U.S. Customs and the Coast Guard, the Secret Service and FEMA, transportation security and immigration and naturalization. At the same time, a Homeland Security Council was preserved within the White House to act as the homeland equivalent of Truman's National Security Council. Two years later, the 9-11 Commission issued its final report with several recommendations for intelligence reform that were hastily accepted by the President and Congress, as, and the result was the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act of 2004. The greatest critiques of the intelligence community at that time was its distributed structure, its knee-jerk secrecy, and the resulting failure to share, share intelligence and connect the dots in the days, weeks, months, and years leading up to September 11th. Quote, responsibility and accountability were too diffuse, wrote the commission of the 9-11 intelligence community. A smart government, the commission continued, would integrate all sources of information to see the enemy as a whole. It is easy to be sympathetic with the commission's argument because responsibility for intelligence is spread over 16 agencies and eight different departments. The picture is further complicated by significant privatization in the intelligence community. Recent studies have revealed that as much as 70% of the national intelligence budget today is doled out to private contractors. In the event of a catastrophic intelligence failure, 9-11 being one of the most dramatic examples in our history, it was hard for the President, Congress, and the American people to hold anybody accountable. Nobody possessed the necessary authority to coordinate the agencies, to force intelligence sharing, or to synthesize all available intelligence sources. President Bush followed three of the Commission's recommendations, using executive orders he better coordinated intelligence and database sharing between the agencies, and through the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act, he created a centralized interagency national counterterrorism center and a director of national intelligence. The 16 agencies, however, remain in their traditional chains of command within eight different departments. The Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act, in other words, created only a weak director of national intelligence with much responsibility and only limited authority, a job perhaps fit for James Forrestal. As we close the door on the George W. Bush presidency, we are left with large institutions at different stages of development to manage most of the major components of our national security, a State Department courtesy of the Founding Fathers to handle foreign affairs, a Defense Department courtesy of Truman to handle military affairs, and a Homeland Security Department and a Directorate of National Intelligence, courtesy of Bush, to handle domestic affairs and intelligence. 
Truman and Bush also established the policy coordinating bodies in the White House uh, to draw these departments together with the president and his principals to formulate national policy. All told, our national security apparatus has a $645 billion price tag today, a full two-thirds of our discretionary spending. This does not include supplemental funding for the wars and for hurricane recovery, which we spent an additional $215 billion on in fiscal year 2008. This gives you a sense of the shape of our national security state today, but much more goes into the President's national security legacy. Harry Truman, for example, is better remembered for his use of the atom bomb, clearly, in, in the war in Korea, and for setting the trajectory of American engagement in the Cold War, than he is for reforming the executive branch. So I would like to conclude by briefly considering a few factors weighing on President Bush's national security legacy. Perhaps there's no better time to do so, the election and transition of a new administration as a way of putting our judgments of the old into clearer focus. Now, in considering President Bush's national security legacy, I would like to suggest, first of all, that we Americans are a people of paradox, as Michael Kamen recognized in his Pulitzer Prize-winning book by that title. Americans, Kamen noted, have managed to be both idealistic and materialistic, peace-loving and warmongering, conformist and individualist. The list of paradoxes goes on. The late John W. Gardner, among many others, recognized that Americans live among these tensions between conflicting values and desires. Not the least among them is a profound tension between liberty and security. That can be traced all the way back to Hobbes, Locke, and the social contract. Leaves Whitney and I have had some great conversations on this recently. The difference between the state of, the uh, state of nature and political community is that we give up certain level of, these, of this liberty to gain a certain level of security. How much liberty? How much security? We are forever recalibrating, and this is the tension we live with. We find liberty and security side by side in our nation's founding documents. Our history, however, reminds us that the two are more often in tension, especially in wartime, and we all know the history of that tension from the founding forward. We are people of paradox. We understand that we need the government to adapt to ever-evolving threats and technologies in its attempt to provide national security. Yet we are ever vigilant in our defense of civil liberties. This is the tension we live with. Of course, this is a tension that has been heightened in the eight years since the 9-11 attacks on our homeland. Controversies over domestic surveillance and roving wiretaps, over new roles for the NSA and FBI, over internments in, in Guantanamo Bay. These are the symptoms of that tension. Our executive branch acts in the interest of security. We react in defense of liberty. At times when security threats are heightened and fear reigns, the executive becomes ever more aggressive, and the people often are willing to compromise their civil liberties a little more. Did the Bush administration take advantage of this understanding? Did it manipulate the politics of fear in inappropriate ways? Or did it simply do what was necessary to adjust to the change in context and to prevent fresh attacks upon the homeland? These are the questions we will ask for the next 100 years. After all, these are questions we're still asking about John Adams, Abraham Lincoln, and, and Franklin Roosevelt, among others. No doubt we will have the same debate about future administrations as we continue to adjust to 21st century threats. Yes, President Bush's record on civil liberties will have an impact on his national security legacy, and yes, the war on terror and wars in Afghanistan and Iraq will be an enormous part of that legacy likely the predominant part. Uh, I would like to say that there are more people here, certainly today, more expert 
on these issues, but I would like to suggest very briefly three other areas in which the President has shaped the current state of our national security state. First, his reform of the national security apparatus, which we've already discussed at length, will have an impact on his national security legacy. Much will depend on how the experiment turns out. We have not suffered another 9-11 type attack on his watch. Will that record of success continue? We could also put further privatization of national security under this category of reforms. Under President Bush, Blackwater, for example, has gone from $200,000 worth of contracts in 2000 to $1.25 billion in the next fiscal year. Similar increases have occurred under DOD and the intelligence community since 9-11, really since the 90s, but especially since 9-11. Second, the Bush administration's conception of American power and how it should be exercised will have an impact. Joseph Nye has written at great length about the difference between hard power and soft power, hard power being military solutions and soft power being the more diplomatic. And certainly we, that we can say that the first term, the president exercised primarily hard power, even if he did so to promote democracy. Secretary of Defense Robert Gates famously complained that we have more members of the military marching bands than foreign service officers. The Bush doctrine with its go it alone mentality and its justification of preventative war was a demonstration of hard power. The administration could have cared less, for example, whether or not it received broad international support for its foray into Iraq, and has been accused of showing little regard for international governmental bodies, such as the UN, or international agreements, such as the Kyoto Protocol. Ivo Dalder has noted the ideological underpinnings of the Bush administration's conception of power. The national security team of Cheney, Rumsfeld, Wolfowitz, and Rice based their strategies on the belief that, quote, American power was enough to make our country secure, that international institutions were vehicles that Lilliputians used to tie down the American Gulliver, not tools for amplifying American influence, and that the United States was a uniquely just great power, so that reassertion of American authority would be welcomed, not resisted. Much has changed from 2006 to 2008, during which time, for example, we saw President Bush initiate high-level negotiations between Secretary Rice and her counterpart in North Korea. He began working through the UN Security Council to develop diplomatic approach to Iran, and he opened the door for a timetable for withdrawal of U.S. combat troops in Iraq. Much has been made of this change in strategy, and in many ways we have seen a new Bush administration in the second term, but nevertheless, its initial conception of American power, particularly in the first six years, will be a major part of the Bush legacy. Third and finally, opportunities the President has failed to embrace may affect his legacy. In 2006, President Bush gave a high-profile speech on energy independence, and many buzzed that this was Bush's Nixon to China moment, the moment when the Texas oil man could break America's oil addiction. Little has been done in this area since, and James Jones comes to office in 2009 as President-elect Obama's national security advisor, promising to make energy independence the number one priority of the national on national security, or one of the number one issues. Much has been made, too, of the President's failure to take advantage of the world's sympathy after 9-11 to assume a role of global leadership. Retrospectively, many have said that an opportunity was squandered after 9-11 and after the full consequences of the subprime mortgage crisis became apparent years ago to at least initiate truly significant economic reforms. In these and other areas, President Bush <coughs> may be accused of missing certain opportunities to bolster our national security. But the national security state to which the Truman and Bush administrations gave considerable shape is forever a work in progress. And of course, we understand that the apparatus is animated by decisions. 
No doubt we will have many shifts in priority under President Barack Obama, and in fact we've already seen Secretary of Defense Robert Gates in the latest issue of Foreign Affairs uh, writing about striking a new balance in the national security strategy. We will watch intently. Thank you.